are in our series in the book of Galatians. And so if you've got your Bible with you, you might want to swipe or tap or flick or turn to the book of Galatians chapter 3. My kids absolutely love The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. Anyone else fans of Tolkien's work? Well, my kids love it. We've had loads of special moments where we've... Uh, you know, I, kind of reading just a few pages of The Hobbit each night, you know, with, with each one of our children in turn. We've just absolutely loved that. But there's a moment in The Hobbit when uh, um, Thorin, who is the king of the dwarfs, uh, he presents Bilbo Baggins with uh, a chainmail coat. And the chainmail coat is made out of Mithril, there you go. Uh, It's made out of mithril, which is this incredibly precious metal that is uh, more beautiful than silver, but at the same time, it's 100 times stronger than steel and 100 times lighter than steel. And so he has this chainmail coat and nothing can penetrate it. And then they have the Battle of the Five Armies, which is one of the most tedious films I've ever seen in my life. Just that's like my little review of that film there, but it's a, a brilliant part of the book. And so they have this battle and then Bilbo Baggins goes home and he takes this chainmail coat with him. And fast forward years and years and years and his nephew Frodo goes on his adventure uh, and, and he takes with him this chainmail coat. And so there, there they are. Uh, I think they're going through the, I can't remember even, the mines of Moria, wherever they're going anyway. Uh, as they're going along, Gandalf says about this coat, he says, I never told Bilbo, but its worth was greater than the value of the whole shire and everything in it. So he says, you know, this coat that that Frodo is just casually wearing underneath his coat, his old coat, no one can really see it, he's not really that bothered, it's oh, it's a nice thing to have, I'll put it on, uh, is actually the value of it is greater than everything that anyone owns in the whole of the Shire, and yet he has no idea. Seems to me that often as Christians, we're exactly like that with the Holy Spirit. Actually, we have no idea of the value of the gift of God within us. Seems to me that underneath our old clothes and our skin, in a place that not, people can't really see on the outside, is a gift from God that is of unimaginable worth and extraordinary power. The question is, do we know what we have? J.I. Packer said this, Have you been melted with spiritual understandings of the glory which has come to you? And it seems to me that there's a real danger that as individual Christians, we absolutely take for granted the fact that God has put his power within us. You know, uh, loads of people have come to faith over the last year in our church. And often when I've sat with them and we've talked about I've said, Do you know that the Holy Spirit is within you now? And they say, Oh, that's nice. You know, that's nice. It's more than nice. It's more than nice. And it seems to me as a church as well, you know, we might say, well, we're a charismatic church. You know, that, uh, and we might be mistaken. We might think, well, that probably means that we've got guitars and drums and, you know, in in our sites we have state-of-the-art electronic drums and right here we've got this, uh, we put our drummers in a box, you know, and put a lid on the top and uh, we sing songs that are less than 20 years old and all of those things, none of that makes us a charismatic church. That makes us a contemporary church. What makes us a charismatic church 
is that we take seriously the generosity of God and that we seek to steward the power that he's given us in a way that doesn't take him for granted but actually recognizes that God has been exceedingly generous to us. And we know that God is speaking to us as a church about this stuff. You know, we had Pete Gregg come here uh, to our big gathering in October, November time and talk to us about being a church that stewards, that hosts the presence of God. And we're, as a leadership team, we're really wanting to dig into that in all kinds of different ways. But I was absolutely thrilled when I came to my allocated passage in Galatians chapter 3 and found that it's all about the Apostle Paul teaching the churches across the Roman, Roman province of Galatia uh, how the power of God is at work in their midst and what that really teaches them about God's grace. So that's where we're going to go this morning. Galatians chapter 3 and we're going to read from verse 1. It's going to come up on the screen as well. He says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So again I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Amen. Okay, so what I think this morning is that this passage teaches us four things about the work of the Spirit in our lives as Christians. And the first thing is this, becoming a Christian is a supernatural event. Verse 3, Paul describes the, the, the moment when all the believers came to faith, saving faith in Christ. And he says it like this, are you so foolish after beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Are you, that's, that's the bit right there. Are you, after beginning by means of the Spirit. You became a Christian by means of the Spirit. It was a supernatural event. And, and actually, um, uh, sometimes that's very obvious, isn't it? We, we had uh, a whole bunch of our missions partners come to visit us uh, and come to our leadership conference last week and uh, two of them were Leslie and Shanti Matthews who are just the most extraordinary church leaders over there in Sri Lanka uh, and on Tuesday night this week they came over for dinner and there was just, I mean their humility is just so inspiring and so staggering uh, but they were just sharing, oh we just planted 29 churches in you know, war-torn parts of Sri Lanka over the last 30 years just quietly just got on with it and they were talking about this one church that they planted where they felt like the Lord specifically laid on their heart a particular village and so they uh, laid hands on a team of people and they sent them off to go and evangelize this village and when they got to the village um, the whole village came out and they said you have to leave right now and we don't want to know anything about this Jesus and if you stay here we'll kill you and so this team thought yeah we're not ready to die just yet and and they left and they came back 
And so Leslie and Shanti began to pray into, how do we see a church established in that place? And it just so happened that maybe a few weeks later, they, were, they had to pass through that particular village on the way to somewhere else that they were going. And as they were going through on their motorbikes, directly in front of this enormous Hindu temple, suddenly they were uh, knocked off their motorbikes. And, and there was an accident. And in fact, Shanti was taken very badly ill. Leslie was okay, but Shanti was taken very badly ill. And she was taken to hospital, and she was in a coma. And the doctors said, listen, Leslie, you better get your family round because we don't think she's got very long to go. And in fact, when the family arrived, uh, the doctors then said to the family, really sorry to say, but, but she's gone. She's slipped away. And uh, so all the family were standing around the bedside crying, and Leslie was furious. And supposedly Leslie went uh, over to where Shanti was lying, dead, on the bed. And uh, he laid his hands on her, and he said, in Jesus' name, I command you to live. And, and uh, I don't know, in your mind, uh, you know, what a resurrection looks like, but I think it probably looks exactly like the way Leslie described it. He said she suddenly just went, <gasps> like that. And uh, within days, she'd been released from hospital. It's amazing. I mean, and he just casually dropped that in. Like, you know, I've, I've met him. I've spent hours and hours with Leslie over the last 10 years. Never mentioned it before. Uh, oh, I just, you know, I raised my wife from the dead. You know, just something that happens all the time. And, and then, um, so then they started to really pray into this particular village. And they, they prayed and they fasted. And I forget the length of time it was. It was weeks that they fasted. Uh, and then Leslie and his team went there to this village and, and when they got to just outside the Hindu temple uh, again the village came out and they said we don't want you here and he said well that's bad luck because I've got something to tell you and they said oh right and, and they, they started to go away into their, their houses and they were bringing back benches and they put all these benches out in a little makeshift stage for him and then they laid all these mats on the floor and then he went and he stood on this stage and they all, the whole village came out and they sat on the floor and he began to worship just standing on this stage. And as he worshipped, there was a girl, maybe in her early 20s, who started to disrupt the proceedings. She was clearly, uh, you know, had lost the plot. And then some of his team just got around her and they cast these demons out of her. And it was very visible, very obvious, uh, all kinds of darkness coming out of her. Uh, and then uh, a whole bunch of people in that village uh, surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ. And, and then they again laid hands on them. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. It was a remarkable moment. You know, sometimes it's really obvious that becoming a Christian is a supernatural event. That is a, a clear clash of the kingdoms, a, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness colliding over those lives and, and God rescuing them from slavery and bringing them into all the freedom that God had for them. Sometimes it's totally obvious, but for many of us, particularly in the Western world, we don't really see uh, Christianity like that. You know, probably most of us think that the way that we became a Christian was, well, you know, I'd been thinking about it for a while, and I'd kind of weighed up the evidence, and I'd tried to investigate whether there was any truth in the history of this thing, and it just came to a point when I thought to myself, yeah, maybe I will become a Christian today. Well, that's maybe what you thought was happening, but what actually was happening was the Spirit of God was 
surging into your life. And the Holy Spirit was bringing a revelation of God's love and his kindness to you. And he was convicting you of your sin. And he was leading you towards the truth. And he was bringing about in you repentance. And he was filling you with all the fullness of God. And he was making you into a new creation. And he was renewing your conscience and your heart. And he was making you more patient and more loving and more kind and more gentle and more self-controlled. To experience the saving work of Christ is to experience the supernatural power of God. And the reason that truth is so important is because... For the last hundred years or so in particular, the church has been, in general, has been trying to downplay the supernatural. It's like, well, we are enlightened now, and so, you know where it says about the feeding of the 5,000? Well, actually, that was more like the world's largest bring-and-share lunch, you know, that was inspired by the example of one young boy, and then everyone else came, and, and, and suddenly there was enough to feed everyone, miraculously, but it wasn't really a miracle, or there wasn't really a virgin birth. Or I suppose that Jesus is alive in our hearts in a particular way. Obviously, his body wasn't proper. You know, that, that didn't really happen. But, it, you know, it's a nice way of speaking about how Jesus is just, you know, alive in each of us in a particular way. And all the time that the church is downplaying the power of God, there's a world out there who's fascinated with angels and vampires and going to clairvoyance and mediums and uh, you know books on all kinds of alternative spiritualities are flying off the shelves. We need to re rediscover the gospel which is ultimately about the supernatural power of God re rescuing us from the powers of darkness. And um, it may be just where, where, you know, maybe you're here this morning or maybe you're here in Inverurie or Ellen and you don't know Jesus. You're not a Christian. You wouldn't call yourself a Christian or you're not sure if you are. But right now, you're kind of aware that there's a power that is beyond yourself that is present with you right now. And, and what I want to say is that is God pursuing you. God is pursuing you. And we're going to provide an opportunity later on for you to surrender your life to the power and the presence of God. That's the first thing. So becoming a Christian is a supernatural event. Secondly, every work of the Holy Spirit is by grace alone. In actual fact, that is the central point of this passage. Um, Paul is doing battle with these teachers who've come into the church who are trying to tell the, these believers that they're not acceptable to God unless they do a whole load of things, unless they become Jews, unless they obey Jewish laws. And Paul says, do you know, not only is that completely untrue and not only is that a dangerous heresy, but actually it's demonstrably untrue. And the way that he demonstrates that you don't need to do anything to be acceptable to God. As he says, you know, we preach the gospel to you, you became Christians, and you experienced the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. And you, ha you, didn't, you didn't even know there was a law, let alone obeying it. You, you, you just, you met Jesus, and you received the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is a demonstration of the grace of God. He says that there's two, 
twice in, in verse 2 and also in verse 5 he asks this question did you receive the spirit by obeying the law and the answer is supposed to be no you didn't you received it by faith you just trusted in Jesus and by his grace God gave you the Holy Spirit if you don't hear me say anything else at all this morning which is you know then that's qu there's quite a good likelihood of that I suspect if you don't remember anything else just remember this every work of the Holy Spirit in your life comes to you by grace because actually most of us as Christians we think we feel that that isn't really true so we for example we see people who are really gifted you know God is really working in them and through them and in our hearts we think they must have done something right you know, or, or God must, God must be really impressed, or they must, you know, they've, oh, God bless them, you know, that's really good that they're being used powerfully by God because they've really earned it. We see someone maybe uh, operating in the gift of prophecy or the gift of tongues, and we think, yeah, probably that they're experiencing the grace of God because they've got their life sorted out you know their, their spiritual disciplines are in place or they're probably a very prayerful people which is why they can speak in tongues but actually we need to rediscover the scandal of grace which says we do not earn the spirit of God we do not earn the activity of the spirit in our lives it comes to us by grace and that feels really uncomfortable we feel like oh no no uh, that that's maybe true for other people but for me that's not really quite true you know God isn't very impressed with me which is why I don't experience the spirit of God that's that's rubbish grace is supposed to make us feel really uncomfortable it's supposed to come a, a, like a bit of a scandal also, for many of us, we'll be thinking, yet yeah, the reason why I don't speak in tongues or the reason why God doesn't speak to me prophetically in the way that he does to other people is because I've got particular issues in my life. We need to receive the truth that, that every work of the Holy Spirit comes to us by grace. Let me just add as a footnote, though, it's not possible to earn the work of the Spirit in our lives, but it is possible to minimize the work of the Spirit in our lives. There are a couple of words that get used quite a lot uh, to describe the work of us saying, uh, God, thank you for everything that you're doing, but I just want you to do it less. Uh, one of them is the word quench. You see that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19. Paul says, do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. And the second word is grieve. You see that in Ephesians 4 verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. What I think he means is this. If you imagine that, that the, the, uh, the most abundant Christian life is found in the river of God's grace and the power of God's spirit so so imagine that you're floating along a river and it's got a really strong current uh, and as you're floating along in the river of God's grace and his power uh, your edges are being smoothed off you know you're being transformed you're being shaped by the power uh, of the water but it is actually possible to hold on to some weeds on the bank 
and say, I don't want to go where that's going. You know, I just want to stay right here holding on to the weeds on the bank. It is possible to do that. And in fact, it's even possible to swim against the current and to swim in the opposite direction from the flow of, uh, of God's grace and his spirit in our lives. It's just a really bad idea. And maybe for some of us today, we know that that actually describes where we've been at, that God's spirit and his grace has been working in a particular direction in our lives. And we've been holding on to something and staying where we are. Or, or, we, or worse, we've been swimming against the tide, saying, no, no, I, I'm not interested in going that way, Jesus. I want to go somewhere else. Every work of the Holy Spirit in our lives is by grace alone. Thirdly, uh, life in the Spirit is supposed to be experiential. If we're honest, outside of conferences and kind of away days and things like that, most of us don't have much expectation that we would experience what I would call spiritual power in our lives. You know, probably, and I definitely would include myself in this, when I'm saying to God, God, please will you give me more power to uh, overcome temptation in my life? Or please will you give me more power to uh, be a better witness in, in my workplace or, or uh, in the community where I live or wherever? Most of us, we're asking for power, but we're not expecting to experience that power. You know, we're thinking that probably, well, how do you know whether you've received the power of God? Well, by faith. You know, and just by trusting that I've asked and, and so God will probably give it to me. Actually, there's a whole strain of teaching in the church, uh, it, particularly in the Western world, that says that, um, that wants to discourage us from feeling or experiencing anything when it comes to the Spirit of God. I read um, a blog recently, and some of you may have read it as well. It did the rounds on uh, social media uh, where a very, very well-known evangelical Bible teacher was saying that to, to want to encounter God uh, in an experiential way in worship is akin to paganism. And he was saying, you know, uh, you know actually, it, it's, it's just safer if, if we try not to worry too much, concern ourselves with experiences of God. It'd be much better if we could just, uh, you know, base our lives on truth and knowledge. I think there's a sense in whole chunks of the church that it's just a bit safer. You know, that, that, that probably to, to want to experience God's presence or hear his voice in, in, in a way that is tangible is for the flaky Christians or for the people who are more spirit than word or however you want to say it. And it, it's just, you know, it's probably just common sense to just err on the side of caution and steer away from anything that looks like an experience of God. Well, to be honest, that, that might sound like common sense, but actually I think not only is that terribly sad, but also I think it's heresy. I think that for the last 2,000 years, there's a heresy that's been doing the rounds called Gnosticism, which is all about, uh, well, actually, God's only really interested in knowledge, and, and he's only interested in what happens between our ears, and he's not interested in, really in the rest of us. I think it's heresy. And actually, the working assumption of the writers of the New Testament 
is that when God's power comes, we know it. Uh, and uh, that kind of happens in two different spheres. It happens personally to us, and it also happens in the gathered church community. So first of all, let's just look at experiencing God personally. Verse 4. If you're the kind of person who underlines things in, in your Bible, here's a word to, to underline. Have you experienced so much in vain? He's referring to the work of the Spirit that is already, he's already been speaking about in verse 3. What he's saying is, you encountered the gospel, you came to faith, you were filled with the Holy Spirit, and you knew about it. And I can now point to that, at those experiences that you had, and say they validate everything that you believe to be true. I just find that absolutely staggering. He's not saying experiences of God are dangerous. He's pointing to the experiences and saying, they, you know that you experience the power of God, and they therefore prove that you've experienced the grace of God. William Barclay, who was a very well-respected theologian of the last century, who often tried to explain away the supernatural and just kind of hide that away a bit, uh, he said this, in the early church... Converts nearly always received the Holy Spirit in a visible way. There came to them a surge of life and power that anyone could see. Just think about um, uh, the Apostle Peter and the Apostle John when they heard about a revival that was happening under the evangelist Philip in Samaria. This is in Acts chapter 8. And when they get there, they just start laying hands on people because that's what they did. Uh, and as they laid hands on people, these people were filled with the Holy Spirit. And there's a man there. He's called Simon the Sorcerer. Simon the Sorcerer. Uh, and, and he sees what's going on and he, he goes up to Peter and he says, could I just pay you some money and you could give me the ability to do that? It only makes sense. They've seen, it actually says, verse 18 of chapter 8, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. It doesn't make any sense if there was nothing to see. He saw the power of God come upon these disciples, and he was like, I want some of that. Same thing happened in Acts chapter 10. Peter goes to the house of Cornelius, and this time, uh, as he lays hands on people, it doesn't say that he can see uh, that they're filled with the Spirit. It says he can hear that they're filled with the Spirit. Some of us have been taught, maybe a long time ago, or maybe more recently, that to have a Christian life that is kind of punctuated by... Uh, um, Moments where we've known the power of God in an experiential way, to have a Christian life like that is to be a bit flaky and, and uh, really not good. But I think actually for all of us, we need to come back to God and say, God, please will you give me a fresh touch of your spirit? God, I, I don't want to just know that, that I'm filled with your spirit in my head. I want my body and my mind and my soul to know. I want every part of me to know that I'm full of you. The thing is, we don't only experience the Spirit personally. We also experience the power of the Spirit corporately. 
Um, Gordon Fee, who is a remarkable Bible scholar, very well respected, he says this, and I love it. He says, it's impossible to avoid the fact that all of Paul's churches were genuinely charismatic. In their meetings together, they were breaking bread and they were, you know, teaching one another and, and they were praying for each other and they were sharing their possessions with each other and there was the gift of prophecy. And in 1 Corinthians 14, he says, when, when uh, somebody who isn't a Christian comes into your gatherings and somebody's prophesying, they'll think, oh my goodness, the secrets of my heart are being laid bare and they'll kind of go flat on the floor. And they'll... Um, and they'll say, God is really among you. To which I say, God, please will you do that in us? Please will you do that here? You know, I don't know about you, but I'm just longing to be the kind of church where God's power shows up and where, where we don't only have prophetic words that are a bit like, you know, I have a picture of a waterfall and God says, I love you. But I'm much more like, oh my goodness. Just like Karen was saying earlier on, oh my goodness, God knows me and, and he's got my number. There were, tongue, there were prophecies, there were tongues, there were signs and wonders in the, in the New Testament church. In this passage, in verse 5, he says, the working of miracles in your midst. And most scholars suggest that the working of miracles is like gifts of healing and deliverance and all kinds of other supernatural phenomena. Gordon Fee goes on to say this, We would prefer to believe that the Pauline churches were more like ours, but the evidence seems incontrovertible. The experience of the Spirit in the life of the believer and the church was a central feature of their existence as believers. To which I say, Lord, please, would we know would we know the power of God and the presence of God and the voice of God in a fresh way? That's the third thing. Lastly, and just only take a minute, we receive the Spirit by faith in Christ. Actually, on four different moments, he talks about that. Verse 2, he says, by believing what you heard. Verse 5, by believing what you heard. Verse 6, Abraham believed God. Verse 7, those who have faith are children of God. And actually the word that is used that's translated as believed is the same word as, the, it just means faith. They had faith in what they heard. What was it that they had faith in? Verse 2, you received the Spirit because you believed what you heard. What was it they heard? Verse 1, before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Probably for a bunch of us, as soon as we heard that we needed to have faith to receive the Spirit, we groaned a little bit. You know, oh, I knew it. I just knew that at some point it's going to come down to me. You know, I knew, eventually I knew that it's something that I'm in short supply of that would be the reason why I don't experience the power of the Spirit. You know, basically I don't have much faith, and so there I am not experiencing much of the Spirit. But Paul would be absolutely horrified if he thought that anyone would read it in that way. Because he's, he's saying it's not about you. It's about putting your faith in the crucifixion of Jesus, is what he's saying. It's about saying, thank you, Jesus, that your death 
ransoms me. It rescues me. Your blood washes me clean. Your broken body breaks the power of sin and death over my life. And now because of all of those things, I'm holy and blameless in God's sight and I'm adopted into his family and there's nothing left to pay. The crucial factor is not the amount of my faith. It's the object of my faith. I trust in the saving work of Jesus and I trust that his death for me was enough. And so all we need to do is just say, Jesus, I trust you with my sin. And all of the grace of God kind of pours out on us like a waterfall. Let's stand, shall we?